Well, before we begin our time together this morning, I invite you to bow your heads with me, and we will start once again with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a privilege it is to enter into your presence this morning, knowing that we are sitting at the feet of our heavenly Father, who is about to bestow upon us a blessing. Lord, it's been a rich blessing so far through Sabbath school and the worship time, and we're just tarrying a little longer uh, to receive an additional blessing. And Lord, we ask that as we look at your word together this morning, that once again, your Holy Spirit would take the message and send it home to our hearts, that we may be more and more like Jesus. For we ask this in his name. Amen. Maybe you have taken the opportunity to contemplate this question at some point in your life. Maybe you haven't. But there have been many people who have thought about this question. What is the most important thing in the world? What is the most important thing in the world? And I suppose that the answer to this question would probably be dictated by where you are at in, your, in the stream of your life. Uh, maybe you are facing health challenges, and you might say that health is the most important thing in the world. Maybe you are facing relationship issues, and you might say having a stable relationship is the most important thing in the world. There would be a variety of answers that would probably come if we were to poll each other this morning to answer this question, what is the most important thing in the world? In fact, people have traveled the world from one place to another, going to far-flung places in this world, trying to find the answer to what is the most important thing. And yet, I believe the answer to this question will be found in this, our last study of 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter. But before we get to that, I want to share with you a statement here from Testimonies, Volume 6, page 439, where we are told this, the greatest work, the what work? The greatest work that can be done in our world is to glorify God by living the what? The character of Christ. What is the greatest work that we can do? To live the character of Christ. Very simply put, the greatest work that we can do is to live the character of Christ. The greatest work that we can do is not the, 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 uh, the actions of our life, but rather it's allowing the character of Christ to be duplicated in our lives. Now, we have spent much time in our time together studying 1 Corinthians 13. We, we've spent a lot of time in a particular section of this chapter that dis- defines for us this character of Christ, which is the greatest work that we can do to live out that character of Christ. So go with me in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 13. We're just going to quickly look at this, and then we're going to push on to the rest of our study together this morning. 1 Corinthians 13, you've read this before. Verses 4 through 7 is where we find Paul's description of the character of Jesus. He's defining for us what agape love is. 1 Corinthians 13 Verses 4 through 7, the Bible says this. Charity, or agape, or you could put the word Christ, Jesus, uh, suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. 
Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked or is not provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, and endureth all things. What is the greatest work that we can do? To live the character of Christ. Where do we find a definition of the character of Christ? Right there in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. That is the greatest work that you and I can participate in as sons and daughters of God. So if you want to do something big for God, if you want to do something big for Him, the biggest thing or the best thing that we can do today is to live a practical Christianity life in our day-to-day life. That's the biggest thing that you could do. It's not how much you give. It's not how much time you spend in acts of service for God. It's not how many uh, pieces of literature you hand out. That's not the greatest work. The greatest work that we can do is to allow God to give us what we have been studying, to continue to pray for in our prayer closets, that God would create this in our lives. We cannot do it on our own. Thus, as he creates it, we can do the greatest work for him and for those around us by living the character of Jesus to others. Paul closes his dissertation on love with a very short phrase in the 13th verse. This closes out our study on the chapter. He says, Now abideth faith, hope, and charity, or agape, these three, but what are the last few words there? The greatest of these is agape, or love. What is the greatest thing in the world? I humbly submit to you from the Christian worldview, from the biblical worldview, that the greatest thing that could happen to this world, second to the second coming of Jesus, The greatest thing that could happen in this world is for sons and daughters of God, the children of the heavenly king, to have what Paul has defined for us in 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter. He says the greatest of these is love. Now, as we've seen in this third section of 1 Corinthians 13, he's comparing between the present mortal state and the future immortal state. And he's telling us, now abideth three things. There are three things that will never come to an end, and that is faith, hope, and charity. But out of the three of them, Paul says the greatest thing that can happen in this world is for you and for me to have the character of Christ as we witness to those around us. The greatest of these is love. Now, this isn't the only place we find this in the Bible. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 14, the Bible says this, And above all things, put on agape, which is the bond of perfectness. Above all these things, Paul says. Peter goes on and he says the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 8. He says, And above all things, have what? Fervent charity, where? Towards your family. To who? Everybody. 
have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity, he says, shall cover a multitude of sins. So this isn't just an isolated thing. It's not something that we just find in the writings of Paul, but actually Peter corroborates with this, and he says, yes, the greatest thing that we can have is that charity among ourselves, for charity shall cover a multitude of sins. And in fact, Paul tells us as much in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that Paul or that, that agape beareth all things or cover overs with, covers over with silence the faults and failings of others. Paul tells us these three Christian graces, they are permanent, they are unchanging, they will abide forever. When the spiritual gifts fail, when the spiritual gifts pass away, as he tells us, in this chapter, faith, hope, and love will withstand the test of time. Now, I want to go through each one of these very quickly here this morning because uh, I want you to see the enormity of the statement that Paul has made here that charity or agape is the greatest of these. When we look at faith, you can't overestimate the value of faith in the Bible, right? Let me just do a quick uh, bird's eye view of what the Bible says about faith here. Just very quickly here, you're all familiar with these passages. You can jot them down in your notes. Uh, Acts chapter 16 and verse 31, the Bible says, uh, this is uh, Paul talking to the uh, Corinthian jailer. Uh, he says, uh, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be what? Saved. Have faith. Believe in God and you shall be saved. Jesus said to Mary when she anointed his feet in Luke chapter 7 and verse 50, and he said unto the woman, thy faith hath saved thee, go in peace. How important is faith? It's huge in the Bible. It's huge. The Bible tells us that her faith in God and his word, his faith, her faith in the promises of God is what would bring salvation to her. You cannot overestimate the importance of faith being exercised in the life of God's people. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 38, the Bible says that the just, you know this one, shall live how? God's people, the just people will live by faith, not by feeling, but they will live by faith. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, the Bible says, but without faith, it is what? Impossible to please God. Throughout the Bible, we see passage after passage where the Bible talks about the importance of faith. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12, the Bible says that we are to fight the good fight of faith. And then it goes on and tells us that we are to take the shield of faith. There's so much in the Bible that tells us the importance of faith. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 33 and 34. The Bible says, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, uh, uh, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the uh, violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the enemies, uh, uh, the armies rather, of the aliens. There's so much that faith has done, yet out of these three Christian graces, Paul tells us that as great as faith is, as important as faith is, as integral as it is to our salvation, he says it takes the back seat when compared with agape. I don't, I don't really fully understand this. 
It's, it's, it's something that I'm working through. It's something that I'm praying for, that the Lord would give me a greater knowledge and understanding of how important it is not to just have a theoretical knowledge of the character of Christ, but to have an experience in my life. Paul puts the emphasis right where it needs to be, and the emphasis is, yes, we need to exercise faith, but not to the diminishment of charity or agape in our lives. I think we have a little room for growth here in our experience with the Lord. In fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 3, you've read it before, he said, he said even if I had all faith so that I could remove mountains, right? what does he say? Without love, I am Huge. These, these statements are so big that I think we could spend hours just contemplating this one verse and its practical application in our lives. But we don't have that time to do, the leisure time to do that uh, here together this morning. I will leave that with you as you go home and contemplate it a little bit more. But Paul goes on, now abideth faith, and then he also brings in this concept of hope. What would we do as Christians? without hope. What would you do without hope? I mean, hope is really what kind of keeps, our, our, keeps, us, keeps us on the right track looking for the coming of Jesus. We call it the blessed hope. That's what we hope for as Christians, that soon this world as we know it will come to an end, that Jesus will come in the clouds of heaven and take us from this earth of sin and suffering into a place of paradise where there will be peace, joy, and happiness forever. That is hope that drives us as God's people. It drives us, and it's something that we will even take with us to the kingdom of heaven. In fact, you can write this down in Romans chapter 8, and verse 24. Paul tells us there that we are saved by hope. Hope. Hoping that God's promises will be fulfilled in my life. We are saved by hope. In fact, I want you to go with me to Hebrews. I want to read this next passage together with you. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 8. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 8, 18, sorry, 18 and 19. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 18 and 19. Listen to what Paul says here. This is a fascinating Bible passage. Again, talking about hope, Paul says this, by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we ought to say amen to that, that's why we have a hope, because God does not lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the what? Hope set before us. We find refuge in hope. He goes on, verse 19. Which hope we have as an what? Anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which entereth in with, uh, into that within the veil. What does Paul call hope in verse 19 there? He calls it an anchor. What is an anchor for? When a ship is in the ocean and it gets caught in a storm, is it thankful for its anchor? Why? Keeps you in place. 
so that you're not buffeted by the storm. The Bible tells us that hope, the hope in the coming of the Lord, the hope that we have as Christians that Christ is coming back, the hope that we have that God will duplicate his character in our lives, that hope is an anchor that keeps us sure and steadfast when the storms of life press in around us. Without that hope, we're like a ship that's caught in the ocean without an anchor that will eventually be washed up on shore and probably destroyed by the rocks. In fact, I heard a story happened in El Salvador several years ago, off the coast of El Salvador. Uh, There were some fishermen that wanted to go out and, and do some fishing, and it was a beautiful day. And they got together, two men got together in their little fishing boat, And uh, before they set off, they noticed that in their fishing boat, they did not have an anchor. They looked in the sky, and it was a blue sky. The sun was shining. It was a beautiful day. They said, ah, forget it. We won't need that. Let's go. It's a beautiful day. We don't have anything to worry about. Well, unfortunately, they didn't look at the weather forecast. And they got out there, and they were fishing, and they were bringing in fish and having a good time. And then all of a sudden, they saw that dark cloud rolling in, and it rolled in a lot quicker than what they thought. And before they knew it, their little ship, their little boat, was caught in the middle of the storm. The boat became swamped, the engine stopped working, and sure enough, the batteries on their GPS ran out, their intercom, their radio stopped working, and there they were, stuck in this storm. The storm went on and on and on and on. And finally, when the storm had passed, they had been swept out into the Pacific Ocean. They spent 14 months washing around throughout the Pacific Ocean. 14 months over a year, they were bobbing around in the ocean until they got washed up on some lowly Pacific island out there because they didn't have a And that's much like the Christian who doesn't have hope. That's much like the human who doesn't have the hope in the coming of the Lord, the hope that God's word provides for us. We are like that ship tossed to and fro, just going about with the current of life and the wind where it blows us until somebody comes along and shares with us that hope that is an anchor that keeps us put until Jesus comes. Faith, hope, both important things for us in our spiritual journey. But Paul takes the last one, he puts it on the top shelf, and he says the greatest of these is agape. Agape is the root out of which faith and hope grow out of. So in order for faith and hope genuine faith and hope to exist, there first has to be the root of agape that has taken hold in my life. As God creates that in my life, faith and hope begin to spring forth. We are saved by faith. We are cheered by hope, but it is love in our lives that diffuses into the lives of other people that draws them like a magnet to the feet of Jesus. Of course, you've heard this passage. We read it just a few moments ago. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 8. And above all things, have fervent charity. Again, 
for uh, fervent charity among yourselves. At the beginning of our study together, we looked at a passage of Scripture, and I want to pull it in here again as we conclude this and wrap it up. You're still, uh, you're actually in Hebrews. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 13 again. We're actually going to go to 1 Corinthians 12, 31. 1 Corinthians 12, 31. We read this passage on our very first message when we looked at this, started looking at this chapter. Paul says this before he even introduces the concept of agape, before he even gets into 1 Corinthians 13, he says this in verse 31, but covet earnestly the best gifts, talking about the spiritual gifts, and then he says, and yet show I unto you a what? More excellent way, or a way that is beyond comparison. As we looked at that, we talked about how this is the only place in all of Scripture where Paul tells us as God's people to covet something. We're told in the Bible that we shouldn't covet. Thou shalt not covet. It's one of the Ten Commandments. But Paul says the one thing that you can covet is to covet the best gifts, the spiritual gifts that God wants to give to us. But listen to me carefully. If Paul tells us that we are to covet the gifts, if we are to covet the gifts of the Spirit, how much more should we covet the more excellent way? How much more should we covet this thing called agape, which is the greatest work that a human being can do, the greatest thing in the world? How much more should we be earnestly pleading with the Lord, give me this, I will not let you go until you answer this prayer for me. Not for my good uh, only, but for the benefit of our church and the benefit of our society and for the upbuilding of your kingdom, Jesus, please give me this experience, right? How much more should we be coveting this more excellent way that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13? I want you to go with me in your Bibles to Matthew 25. I want to read to you a passage as we conclude this here that really challenged me in my personal life. As I pray and ask God to help me to do this greatest work in my life, this is a passage that I've struggled with, not because I don't believe it. Of course, I believe it with all my heart. But because, unfortunately, I don't see it done very much by me and by others. The Bible says this, Matthew 25, verse 31. And when the Son of Man shall come in his glory, the blessed hope, that's what we're looking forward to, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations. How many nations? And he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divided the sheep from the goats. So there's a separation that's going to take place. The sheep on one side, goats on the other side, right? Verse 33. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, come, You blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of 
the world. How many of you are looking forward to that? How many of you want to hear God say that of you? Beautiful thing. Now listen to what the next verse says, the very first word. The first word is what? For. You could translate that in your mind, because. All right, so he says, come ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you, because. And he's going to tell you the reason why they will inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for them. Because I was a hungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, insomuch as you have done it, Unto one of the least of these, my brethren, what does he say? It's very interesting to me the reason that the Bible gives that the righteous will inherit the kingdom of heaven. And what you are seeing described there is this benevolent love for humankind. If God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son. He paid with a heavenly currency for your salvation. Is that valuable, yes or no? If God valued humanity so much so that he was willing to pay with the life of his son, how much more should we love one another? And, and Matthew is telling us, in fact, this is Jesus that's talking here. Jesus is giving us the reason why the righteous will inherit the kingdom of heaven. And it has nothing to do with what they believed. This challenged me. This challenged me. It's not about what I have inside of my head, but in the eyes of Jesus, it is how I have lived my life in my interaction with other people. Of course, it doesn't end there. Verse 41, it goes on and it says this, Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. What's the next word? Or you could say, because. All right, so now he's talking about the wicked, that they will be departed into everlasting fire. And he's going to give the reason why. And here's the reason why. Because. I was a hungered, and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you took me not in. Naked, and you clothed me not. Sick and in prison, and you visited me not. Then shall they also answer and say unto him, or say, answer him saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered, or thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, insomuch as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not unto me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. We, we need to have this experience in our lives where we are not just converted to Jesus, but we are converted like Jesus. 
that we love the world as the Father loved the world so much that we would be willing to spend of ourselves to better other people around us. This is the reason. In fact, if you read this in Inspiration, you will find that the judgment hinges, she uses the word hinges, on this point right here, Matthew 25, the way we treat one another. Now, of course, what we believe, the truth that we hold to is important. It's important to understand the truth, the doctrines of God's word. That's important. But in the judgment, Matthew 25 is what the judgment hinges on because Matthew 25 will reveal whether or not you had the character of Jesus in your life. Matthew 25 will reveal whether or not you are engaged in the most important work. Matthew 25 will reveal whether or not your Christianity was genuine or if it was a counterfeit. Paul says, the greatest of these is love. And that love is manifested in the various ways that we've just read about in Matthew, the 25th chapter. I invite you to go home and wrestle with this. Wrestle with the Lord on it. And, and, and say, and if, 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 if this is not what you see in your life, I don't know what goes on in your daily life from day to day. But if this is not what is taking place in your life, wrestle with the Lord and say, Father, give me opportunities to better other people. Give me opportunities to show in a practical way, Matthew 25, in my life, and to show other people the love of Jesus in a practical, loving way experience. For our last passage of scripture, I invite you to go with me to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3, we're going to begin in verse 14. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14. Of course, Paul is talking here to the church of Ephesus, but you see a common theme here that's going through some of his epistles to the different churches. For this cause, he says, I bow my knees unto, our father, unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What do we call that when we bow our knees? Worship, or we call it prayer, right? So he's bowing before the Father in prayer. He's bending his knees praying for the church of Ephesus. How many of you think that's a good example to follow? Pray for one another. Pray for the different churches. Pray for God's people. He's bowing his knee, and it goes on, and it says this. Verse 15. Of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in what? Love may be able to uh, comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the depth, and the height to know and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. 
I pray for the Muskegon Seventh-day Adventist Church and for each one of you here that we would be a church that is rooted and grounded in love. Amen? We have the truth. But that we be rooted in love. That we would draw our nourishment from love, the love of Jesus, and that it would flow in us and through us and out of us to those that God brings us into contact with, that we would be rooted in agape, that we may be able to comprehend the breadth, the length, the depth, the height, the love of God which passeth all knowledge. You know what that tells me in that passage of Scripture there? That tells me this. We do not properly understand love in any way. It passes all knowledge. You could think about this stuff until Jesus comes back and there would still be a depth to agape that we would be learning throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity in the kingdom of heaven. That's how deep it is. We think it's just a very shallow thing that we're kind to one another as we've talked about in this series. But no, there is a depth there that God can share with you the more you contemplate, the more you meditate, the more you pray through it and you ask God, give me this thing, it will become deeper and richer and more beautiful. I think for us to try to describe agape, and this is kind of the thing that I've struggled with as I've gone through the series. For, for us to try to describe the love of God, it's like, it's like me going to Yosemite National Park. Anybody ever been there before? There's a couple of you. It's like, it's like me going to Yosemite National Park and snapping a picture of the valley with a Polaroid camera. And then coming back and trying to describe to you the grandeur and the beauty of that wonderful place. Do you think it would do it justice? Those of you that have been there really know that it wouldn't do it any justice. Even my fancy camera that, that, that cost me lots of money, even if I used that to take pictures of the Yosemite Valley, it would still pale in comparison because a picture cannot capture the feeling, the sounds, the grandeur, the panoramic view of how wonderful that place is. And in my opinion, it's one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. But perhaps that snapshot of the Yosemite Valley might inspire you to take a trip out there and see it for yourself. And trying to describe agape is a lot like that. It's like we're looking at a Polaroid, a snapshot of the character of Jesus. It just pales in comparison to the reality. But we do it anyways because it might inspire somebody else. It might inspire others around us to dig a little deeper to pray a little harder, to have greater faith that God would show us the grandeur and beauty of not the Yosemite Valley, but the beautiful character of Jesus. You know, in fact, it's interesting to me, you've heard this passage before where John tells us in 1 John, he says, behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon him. It's almost like John, as he's thought about the love of Jesus, he, he just, he, he got so tired trying to describe it because his human words couldn't really describe it. So he just says, behold it. Look at it yourself. 
because I'm having a hard time describing it. And I think that's a great thing for us to do, to behold it, to go into our prayer closet, to go into our devotional time and to spend time beholding the love of Jesus. And I think that's why we're told that we would do well to spend a thoughtful hour each day in the meditation of the life of Christ, especially the closing scenes. She says we're to take it point by point, scene by scene. And she says to allow the imagination to grasp what happened there. Behold, behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. A couple of promises I want to leave you with as I think about doing this greatest work, allowing God to give me his character, it's a little daunting. Seems a little too big, like it's never going to happen. But the Bible tells us in 1 John 5, 14, that this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, what does it say? He what? He hears us. So if I pray and ask God, please give me this, this character so I can partake in the greatest of work, will God hear that prayer? Will he answer that prayer? Even if it appears like it's impossible in my life to have that experience, there's no question about it. God will hear and God can answer that prayer. If you shall ask anything, he says in verse 14 of John 14, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. That's a blank check. If you ask anything, anything in my name, he's saying, here's a blank check. Just write down what you want. Anything in my name, of course, if it's according to the will of God, anything in my name, I will do it. And so I appeal to you this morning as your pastor and as your friend, that you would continue to press home this petition to the throne room of God. That as we move on to other subjects in our study of the Bible, that we won't forget what we have seen thus far. And that we would ask the Lord to continue to perfect his character of love in our lives. That our church would be rooted and grounded in the love of Jesus towards those around us. That's your desire. I invite you to stand with me this morning as we make this commitment together to God as a body of believers, as a family of Christ. Father in heaven, we realize this morning our own inadequacy. It is impossible, Lord, for us to attain attain to this greatest work on our own. But, Father, with you, as we've read, all things are possible. So, Lord, we ask that you would strengthen us in the inner man. That as we contemplate the length and the depth and the breadth and the height of the love of God, that we, as John, would behold it and be moved by it. That we would be changed into the image of Jesus from within out. Father, we want to be rooted in love, and we pray that you would perform this miracle in our own lives individually, that it may be a reality corporately. Thank you, Father, 
for already starting this perfect work. Thank you for the transformation that has already begun to take place. And we thank you for what's going to continue to happen as we grow and become more and more like Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray this. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.